Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights. In this episode, we are going to look at the second Bush administration's adventure into using the latest technology to change societies. Well, you might be mistaken in thinking that we were talking about the recently ended military presence in Afghanistan. But no, we are in fact talking about America's dramatic and long-term investment in HIV medicines, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, which also began in the early 2000s. And according to our guest, this was nothing short of the US's first moonshot of the 21st century. Our guest is Emily Bass, an international HIV and sexual reproductive health advocate and uh, activist who has recently launched a new book, To End a Plague, which argues this precise point, that the massive billion-dollar investment in the US to preserve and ultimately end the AIDS epidemic was America's moonshot. Emily, welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. Thank you so much, Ben. I'm really happy to be here. It's an honor to have you here. And I I would love to start by learning about how you became involved in AIDS activism. And uh, maybe a little cheekily to kick it off, we have a clip of you at the Amsterdam AIDS conference in 2018, which I think quite beautifully captures your utterly engaging and welcoming style, which is yet also utterly uncompromising in the way you speak to truth to power. Just to guide our guide our conversation and keep my bag there while we're talking. Um, so um, I definitely want to. Um, okay. All right. I guess you want to check the other side. Here's what it says. But we're gonna. Right. So it is deadly serious, as Helen said. It is a time for activism. It is a time for for engagement. So really, what was happening here is through classic AIDS activism, the power of the visual and the audio. There you are on a top panel, sitting with friend of A Shot in the Arm podcast, Yvette Raphael, and you have a handbag. And on the front of your handbag, it reads... It reads, pro-choice. And I should say, it's the power of activism. It's also the power of the purse. My cousin... <laughs> Michelle Pred is a brilliant visual artist, and that purse is um, a, one of her art pieces. So it it uh, is neon. I didn't have it turned on on the time, but it's neon letters that said pro-choice on one side. Uh, and on the other side, and I flipped it around, and you heard me say, you know, I'll give you a, a view of the other side. It, it said nasty woman. Uh, <laughs> and as, as we all remember, uh, or, or perhaps have, have uh, chosen or tried to forget, um, uh, that was that was one of the sobriquets that that the last president of the United States um, applied to to Hillary Clinton um, and to and to other formidable women. So um, we were on a panel at a moment when the um, the United States, the expanded global gag rule um, that the United States was was um, uh, using to to um, restrict women's right to control their bodies was 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 killing people. Um, and it was a chance to um, to uh, raise attention to that. And I, and I don't. In, uh, and in doing this, you upset the conference organizers as well, didn't you? Well, I didn't upset the conference organizers. Um, there were I so so the 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 I I, I raised concerns for um, as as I understand it, didn't come back to me directly, but for for the um, South African government. Um, there were people on that panel at that time that were um, subject to the gag rule. And it was so pernicious uh, that there was concern about being in the same frame with a purse that said pro-choice. Oh. Yeah. Well, let us pray we don't go back to those days. Aye, aye. Yeah. So could we talk a bit then about your beginnings uh, could you talk a bit about your life, how you became involved in the global fight against AIDS? Sure. Um, so I, I come from New York City. I come from the Upper West Side. I come from a left liberal family. I went to, um, uh, my, my father is an Episcopalian from, from the South, and my mother's a Jew from the Bronx. And I, I got sent to um, 
radical left secular Jewish education uh, as a child. And, um, and part of that education was to understand yourself in the world uh, as being in solidarity with whatever the, the struggle was that was before you. And um, so we, when we did the Seder, when we did the, the, the Jewish ritual, we, we moved very quickly from Moses in the basket to World War II, to civil rights, um, to the present. And so this idea that what you do is you participate in the struggle before you um, was, was um, my marching orders before I knew differently. Uh, fast forward to 2000, uh, or to the mid-90s when I moved back to New York City as a queer social justice activist. Um, I'm fact-checking at Out Magazine, and uh, at that point, you fact-checked the fashion spreads. You, they, they had um, captions for the perfumes in them. So I was sitting there fact-checking what people would smell like if you could smell them, uh, or the HIV articles. And, and it became pretty, pretty clear to me that, that uh, the, the day's struggles were, were in, in that HIV, uh, um, in, in the journalism and the questioning of, of my, my mentor, um, Anne Christine Dedeski, who gave me my first job at Out Magazine and invited me to AIDS activist meetings where um, also the women were really hot. So there was like, you know, all, all great movements uh, have, have a social side. So, um, so that you, and I arrived uh, at Out a week or two after the first Proteus inhibitor had been approved. So while I grew up in New York City and saw the AIDS epidemic, my Entry as an activist was at the moment when triple combination therapy is changing lives for people who can access it, and there is a gross inequity, um, really comparable to what we're seeing now with COVID, in terms of what life looks like if you have HIV and you do or don't live in a country or a community where you can access antiretrovirals. It, it is perhaps the most shocking thing of our generation, and, and it brings us to your new book, To End a Plague. You've just released it. It's about the involvement of the United States in the global response to AIDS. Um, uh, America's fight to defeat AIDS in Africa. Why did you feel that story needed to be told? Why did you write it? So I... Um, as I said, I arrived in, in, in an AIDS activist movement um, that in, in the uh, mid-90s that um, was based in, in the U.S., but in solidarity and in cooperation and collaboration with activists around the world, in Brazil, in Thailand, in South Africa, uh, in Uganda. So, so in every country where there were and were not AIDS drugs, there were activists, uh, people living with HIV and their allies seeking to um, solve the problem, seeking to address this murderous inequality. Um, and that was what I was writing about at HIV Plus, and those were the meetings I was going to after hours. And um, in, no, in, in, in what was both inexcusably too long and in a very short amount of time, there were a series of victories. It was, it was from the inside, it felt both, both um, appallingly long and, and exhilaratingly fast. And I'm talking about changes intellectual property um, rights, the ability to drop the prices of drug, this drug regimen, regimen from five figures um, to, to less than a dollar a day. That doesn't happen because of gravity. It doesn't happen because of morality. It doesn't happen because of largesse. It happens because an activist movement makes it impossible for, for profits to be prioritized over people's lives. And once the prices come down, the medications begin to appear um, and there's a mechanism to pay for them, and that is that is the Global Fund, and it's also PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Um, and as I started to really write this book in earnest, um, a lot of really important history was emerging. The documentation of the era that had ended when I arrived in into this formative movement, this fierce and formative movement. So you had How to Survive a Plague. Um, and we were here at Dallas Buyers Club and a, and a whole set of narratives that really told different pieces of the story of, uh, of the fight to have these drugs be discovered. And Sarah Shulman's recent book, um, Let the Record Show, is a great addition to that, a really, really important one, because there's a lot happening outside of the fight for the medications. Um, but there was no history of what came after. There was no history. There's no history of, of the subsequent movement and, and its victories. And um, that felt crucial 
Um, you know, and, and so sometimes you end, it wasn't the book I actually planned on writing, but it was the book I needed to have, have been written. So I wrote it. Well, I've got a lot of questions about the book. Um, the, the first that comes to mind is that as the United States is is going through this this sort of throes of trying to work out what it means to be uh, a good global citizen. You know, the same thing, and, and don't be fooled by my accent, I, I am English by legacy. Um, uh, you know, the same thing was happening in, in the UK. And... Um, uh, this extraordinary coming together of colonial, post-colonial, anti-colonial efforts. And um, I would just take a moment to uh, remember the extraordinary British uh, global AIDS activist, Sarah Middleton-Lee, who sadly died um, recently. But people like her really had their, f their, mm, their feet to the wheel, our feet to the wheel, to make sure that we were pushing, we were engaged, uh, and we didn't think that access to medicines meant making sure that uh, regulatory approvals had happened in Belgium as opposed to the United Kingdom. But as you came to write this story, how did an administration whose legacies would otherwise be decades-long wars somehow now become associated with this extraordinary act of global solidarity? That's a great question. Um... You know, for any major pandemic response, and there's a lot of lessons in this moment that I think apply to uh, the present day and to what we're hoping um, President Biden will do in, in the United States with a global COVID response, um, it's essential to have enormous presidential leadership and interest. Um, not, and, and we had that. Um, President Bush wanted to do something big on HIV. Um, he wanted to do it before 9-11. Um, he had various reasons, various attachments to, um, to Africa. He'd been to the Gambia. He'd read Roots. He had advisors who talked to him about it. I mean, we can, you can, um, you know, certainly sort of do what you want with any, any white person's, you know, source of affinity with Africa, white American persons, including my own, right? We all go and we, we form attachments and fantasies, but but um, when you're the president and, and that happens, you can also do sort of extraordinary things um, and many other people, I mean, activists as well. So, so he, he wants to do something big and he um, is surrounded by people, but particularly an advisor uh, named Gary Edson, who um, are like Bush and Edson is, is um, the Sherpa for the G8. So he's, he's the, the advisor in the, in the global space. And he's also wearing a, two hats. He's a, a deputy advisor for national security and for economics. So he's really seeing the world through these lenses of, you know, what happens in the economic space affects security, which is not the militarized view, mm -hmm. which, and all of this is interesting because that's not Bush's primary legacy, which is military disaster, right? Um, but, but within that you have guys with ideas and they have ideas about how to do aid differently and not just PEPFAR. PEPFAR is actually one of several things that Bush tries to do. And he's actually credited with doing more to change U.S. foreign aid than, than anybody, um, um, since John F. Kennedy. I mean, the things yeah. that they tried were extraordinary. So they want to do something on AIDS and they pull in someone that, so a name you may have heard, Tony Fauci, um, and you know, tell me if, stop me if, if you, that uh, doesn't ring a bell. And, and they say to him, you know, what is the moonshot here? Um, what would you do if money's no object? And um, uh, Fauci's first suggestion is, was, was sort of of a keeping with the moment. It was, it was modest, but it would have had impact, which was to spend some money to give um, two drugs uh, or two doses of medication, one to women as they deliver and one to the infant that they deliver to reduce the risk of passing on HIV and and you know Bush said great that's that's nice but but I think we need we can do something bigger. Yeah, yeah I remember I remember Tony presenting about this, um, uh, calling it a moonshot and and I can't I can't help myself at the time feeling, wow that's sort of pretty underwhelming, but but in this short period there moves from let's just protect babies during when the mum is giving giving birth, to suddenly let us keep families alive through widespread use of antiretrovirals. 
And um, again, I mean, okay, so Tony called it the moonshot, but uh, but on the face of it, um, it it could be seen as an exaggeration. But why do these words resonate for you? Mm -hmm. Why do they why do they frame uh, the book for you? Uh, thanks for asking that. Um, so, so you know, the the to get to the moon, right? Uh, it's like an enormous technical undertaking. It's an enormous. You need to solve every piece of the delivery system. In this case, it's it's the rocket. You know, it's choosing the fuel. It's it's uh, you know training the folks. It's it's an enormous technical challenge that has this this you know sort of literally kind of celestial divine you know, uh, sort of, sort of end point. Um, but, but, but it's, it, for all of that sort of symbolism, it's, it's, it's just a massive, massive technical undertaking. Um, and the, the, at the point that there is a decision, um, a recognition, a belated recognition that it is imperative to provide AIDS drugs in Africa to the, to everybody who needs them, but particularly to adults, in almost all of the countries where the epidemic is raging, there is no ambulatory adult healthcare system. So there's no healthcare system for people who walk in and walk out. There are hospitals, there are occasionally emergency rooms, there are no ambulances, right? You know, and I'm, I don't, it's, it's very tricky to generalize across whole regions of the world, and I don't want to sort of stray into Africa as a country territory, but we are talking about um, whole regions of the world, not just in sub-Saharan Africa, where basic healthcare uh, uh, obligations that are part of Alma-Ata, a declaration made in the 70s, have not been met, right? Yeah. So you don't just need to sort of deliver pills into a system. You don't need to just get the drugs on the shelves. You don't need to just train the doctors. You need to build everything. You need to build the system that is adequate to delivering it. You need to train the doctors. You need to build the supply systems that will bring the medications in because if you miss doses, it's a problem. It's not. It's not... No stock out is okay, but a stock out of antimalarials is is in many ways very different from a stock out of antiretrovirals. So the the scale of the technical undertaking, the the number of different moving pieces, the number of different components that needed to be assembled, fitted together, and 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 sort of deployed to make this work, um, really do feel moonshot level, right? Um, you know the 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 supply contract that was awarded to support the just the US government's PEPFAR program alone is the largest peacetime contract ever awarded. So we really yeah. are talking about a scale that is that is um, worth comparing. And we're looking at a part of the HIV response, essentially treatment, where it is possible to demonstrate uh, impact really uh, uh, sort of relatively easily. And, and I really do want to talk about treatment before coming on to prevention and some of the more controversial aspects of PEPFAR. Um, but the key thing about treatment is that it's something that once you start, you cannot reverse it. And, and I wonder, do you think the US policymakers back in 2001 understood that once they started making these massive investments that essentially kept a generation of African leaders alive, did they understand that there was no backing out of this? Uh, yes. Uh, the, the, the forces that propelled PEPFAR into being knew what they were doing. Um, and, uh, and, and this is the AIDS activists, and it is also the Christian conservatives and the evangelicals in this sort of strange bedfellows moment um, uh, that that all understood very well what what it meant to put people on treatment and those in those early days the the targets were were modest they were they were incredibly ambitious relative to what who the number of people who had been on treatment but they were modest relative to the proportion of people on HIV um, and so what what with HIV excuse me, um, who required treatment. And what you see over time is increasing evidence that the, that people should, with HIV should be offered treatment um, as soon as they're diagnosed and that starting treatment can both have a clinical benefit for the person and reduce risk of onward transmission. And that science comes in at a point where then you start to have an American government um, and, and sort of um, political chatter in class that is saying, oh, we can't afford to do this anymore. But at the moment that it starts, I think it's very clear um, that, that we're in this. 
So, so 20 years later, um, I, I don't know if you hear this, but, but I certainly hear a, a strong level of, of anxiety. We, uh, Biden is ending the war in Afghanistan. So there is, there is one legacy of Bush that is gone. And, and if we look at uh, the negotiations between uh, Congress and the previous administration, the former guy, um, we see that the former guy was constantly looking at ways of cutting uh, overseas development aid, particularly in PEPFAR. Do you think there is enough bipartisan or, or cross-political support for sustained investment in the AIDS response? Uh, we regularly have uh, Chris Collins, who's a, uh, a good friend of A Shot in the Arm podcast, who's sort of fighting the good fight um, around, the, uh, around the Capitol and the Congress. But it really, it really amazes me that there is such bipartisan support for this. How rock solid is it? So I think it's a great question. Um, you know, over this spring, there was a, a Senate um, a Senate hearing that was an update on on COVID and on the on the U.S. global COVID response. And Senators Rish and Menendez, who subsequently introduced a bill for an international uh, COVID and pandemic prevention response that is not unlike some of the legislation that stood up PEPFAR years ago. Um, both of them, the, um, there were among many people in the room that day that, that kept referring back to PEPFAR as the shining example of, of what the U.S. has done in the global space and the way that it has brought agencies together um, under a whole, what they call a whole-of-government approach housed in the State Department to really have an impact on an epidemic. So that, is, that feels positive um, in, insofar as PEPFAR is live in, in the minds of bipartisan lawmakers to this day as, as a crucial example of what we have done well. The, the critical piece and the piece that, that activists um, are continuing to attend to and must attend to because none of this support, this support is, is the result of ongoing present activism. So it didn't end in 2003 or 2004 when it, it is a constant embedded interplay, you know, the inside-outside game. Um, is to make it impossible to move away from PEPFAR as a program that um, is part of the funding for the fight against an epidemic and a pandemic that is not over, and that has actually been exacerbated by by COVID in ways that we we don't yet even have the full scope of. So, I think that there is, um, I think that lawmakers know uh, what they've got. I think President Biden knows what what he's got. I think there's a lot of awareness of the strength of this program. And at a moment when there is clamor and cry for, for our global health resources to go into health security, uh, there are warning signs that that's going to be defined as a different space than the so-called humanitarian space of HIV. And we need to understand that there's no difference between investments um, to show American compassion and investments in the service of, of self-interest. They're the same yes. thing. Yes, and I, I really want to come back to that. Just, just one thought it would be great to get your views on. One of the things the aid movement has done tremendously, uh, and that's irony over the last 20 years, is create timetables. Getting 15 million people on treatment by 2015, by ending AIDS um, 2020, by ending AIDS as a public health threat. I think that's still what we're working on by 2030. I have this, it infuriates me like hell because I feel as if we've just pulled them from the sky as advocacy tools. Do they serve any purpose, do you think? Oh, yes, they do. I mean, so, so the, the, at the, the, 95, 95, 95, and 90, 90, 90, the, the targets that have been the most effective um, in when I, I, when I should say, when I started reporting this out, I was similarly infuriated with, with some of these targets. So 90, 90, 90 refers to the percentage of people living with HIV who know their status, who then are on antiretrovirals, and then 90% of those should be virologically suppressed. Um, and I come from a background of advocacy and activism that also focuses on, on what what the public health world calls primary prevention, which is preventing HIV in people who do not yet have it. And 
treatment is a component of prevention, but it's not the entire story. And there and the 90-90-90 goals were really sold to the world as a way to end HIV, when in fact they were a piece of a response that if we scaled it would actually end pandemic levels of HIV. Um, and those other pieces did not receive the seminal attention. So, so um, absolutely infuriating on that front. And at the same time, what I have heard from, from physicians and policymakers and budget holders um, in many different places is, wow, those, those targets really helped. Because I could then talk to the provincial government in a given country and I could say, you know, we're not hitting these targets and that is why you have to do better. Um, the country is slipping on this or the country, you know, is right there and could actually get to 90, 90, 90, but we need to fix our viral load um, you know, system. We need to invest in in workers. And so those targets, which are global and fit on a t-shirt and and can can impel a sort of skepticism at the at the local level, um, impelled action. And I think that's that's one of the one of the you know bits of genius and also sort of complexities of the AIDS response is it impelled action on something that was essential um, and not sufficient. And so yeah. we got to get the whole piece together. Yeah. I, you know, I don't disagree with you. Um, I, I, I know friends would whack me over the head rightly if I didn't observe, and I know you, you believe this very strongly too, that the 90 is absolutely fine, but it'll be very convenient to forget the 10% who might well be the people who are most at risk. Yep. Gay men, sex workers, young women, uh, people who inject drugs. So it, it's, it's complex. But I do love the way the AIDS movement has known how to take the uh, communications and advocacy uh, styles and tactics of the moment. It's really impressive. Can we talk a bit about how PEPFAR works? In the early days, and, and it still functions to some degree, the model was done through US embassies rather than the international community, the multilateral agencies. And presumably there was a, an element of a political decision there. You know, we, we don't want to work with the international community. We're much better if we do it ourselves. But that decision happened at the same time that the Global Fund against AIDS, TB uh, and malaria was established. And I, I wonder whether you feel that that, that choice, that sort of uh, America first or proto-America first approach to providing uh, HIV aid, was that helpful or did it slow the, uh, the establishment of the Global Fund? So I think that what 20 years on, 20 plus years on, what, what we can say is that a bilateral and a multilateral response together can be really powerful. So America's a bilateral response um, is, is, it is, a, it is still to this day run through the embassies and it by teams that, that comprise all of the agencies that work in a country, USAID, CDC, Department of Defense, Peace Corps. Um, and I would say that, that particular structure, the embassy-based structure, um, is, is a solution to, and a fairly good solution to, um, long-standing um, interagency rivalries, tensions, and differences of opinion about how to get work done, and different styles and different expertise. So you have, you have a, a, a structure internally that, it, that is a solution that solves for an American issue, right, inside. But if you pull the camera back, you have a bilateral that can spend its money, set its targets, and still to this day really drives an agenda that is, that is set with countries and with activist in, input, but also with a DC, uh, uh, a, a DC oversight. And then you have a multilateral, the Global Fund, which is um, designed to be bottom-up, country-driven plans, um, a very different model of decision-making. And um, the fund was slower to get off the ground and slower to prove its worth. And that is um, not wholly because uh, the American, the Bush administration um, started PEPFAR, um, though certainly the decision to underfund it, to lowball the first American contribution, really gave other countries an excuse not to put more money in. And that's something to watch now with any pandemic prevention fund is where's the U.S. going to come in in terms of contributions, because yeah. that does really dictate where other governments come in. So um, 
so it's it's complex. Um, the gover- the U.S. government didn't support both equally. PEPFAR really was the leading edge of its AIDS war. And in terms of establishing systems and moving with speed, PEPFAR in many countries, though not all, but many countries um, move faster than the fund initially. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a very timely comment about reinforcing the need of partners to invest. And this is happening at a time when the United Kingdom, for example, has made very savage cuts to its overseas development aid, affecting many of the programs that we're talking about right now. So um, hope there are ways in which that can uh, can be reversed. But that's just me. Um, at the HQ level of PEPFAR, there were some extraordinary senior level, pardon me, senior level ambassador level coordinators based in the State Department. Uh, three that we know terribly well, Mark Dybel, Eric Goosby, Deborah Burks. And I wonder if we could start with Mark and Eric. Um, I think a lot of the success, notwithstanding the fact that these were managed by embassies, but I think a lot of the success of PEPFAR came from their leadership. What are your recollections of the interactions with them that, that speak to the kind of leadership they evoke? So um, I actually am going to back up. Um, the first head of PEPFAR was Randall Tobias. Um, Randy who Tobias. Often, who often yes. gets left out um, of these stories. Um, and and at a certain point in my reporting, um, he was not um, someone that I figured as much. And it was actually Eric Goosby, who's the third ambassador who you just named, um, who who I was interviewing him. And he said, you know, I'd really love to go back and, and um, thank Tobias for for his leadership. He made a ton of decisions that were really critical. And so I think part of what the book tries to do is is um, restore his his role in this. So Randy Tobias was a former drug company executive. Um, uh, he was he was tapped to lead the PEPFAR um, at a moment where um, activists were enormously concerned, rightly so, about the U.S. government's um, uh, allegiances with drug companies and and the commitment to have PEPFAR only by branded drug or only by FDA approved drugs, yeah. which at that point meant branded me- medication. So Tobias comes in in a cloud of skepticism, right? I mean, and he looks like um, uh, th- this looks like proof positive that that Bush isn't serious about this. You know, a drug company executive and and everybody that I spoke to. Um, about his leadership and about that time says, no, he really, really changed things. So he came in and he was not going to give contracts to the same USAID contractors that had been getting money for for 25 years. And he wouldn't take the position until um, he had a very clear mandate from the president that that he was going to be the one making decisions amongst these agencies. Um, and he didn't hesitate to pick up the phone when he needed to, to say, listen, do you want me to hit these targets, the 2, 7, 10, 2 million people on treatment? being the one that everyone was focused on, or do you want me to, to continue funding this, this group that says that they've gotten funds for 25 years? So I think just, just recognizing Ambassador Tobias's contributions is, is sort of an interesting piece of this because it challenges our ideas, right, as about who played what role. And um, I remember meeting Randy, I think with, uh, with Mark Dybel, yeah. at a time when I was serving Peter Piot and, and mm-hmm. we met somewhere in Geneva, and went down our list of asks and found that they were all answered, yep. you know, within 10 minutes of the meeting and, 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 and leaving the meeting room, Peter saying, wow, we can really do business with this guy. Well, he defined the role. So, so I think the thing to understand, because you're asking about these other folks, and, and the thing is that he changed the job description, right? He defined the job description, which then was inhabited by other people and essentially said, you know, he tells the story, he told me this story about, about um, you know, he says he turned down the job and, and that, you know, Bush described it as essentially chairing a committee of the agencies that would be implementing it. And, and he said, you know, I, I understand, you know, you, at this point, you know, Congress is, is authorizing, you know, military action in Iraq. And, and he says, well, I understand, you know, that's underway. You know, would you like to run that by committee, Mr. President? You know, you know, and call me, you know, which, I mean, let look at how those wars turned out. So, so not the best model, but, but, um, but essentially what you have, um, in part because of, of these negotiations, right, and the way that Ambassador Tobias um, led the program, is a position that then um, is enormously defined by the personality and, and the beliefs and the priorities of the, of the 
person in charge. And I think that's what you're asking about. And each of those people that you named has a very distinct um, approach and identity and and sort of set of of characteristics. And this is like a uniquely um, a uniquely personality driven program. Yeah. I mean, USAID is is beholden to Congress in all sorts of ways that really mean every administrator gets to do things differently. So you know, the shorthand and there's there's you know there's uh, much, much more to say, but, but you know, Mark Dibel, um, who succeeds Randall Tobias, um, has, has um, you know, remarkable political instincts um, and is able to secure reauthorization. Um, and again, no one is working alone here. The activists are on the front line. The, the Christian conservatives are on the front line. I mean, everybody wants Pepfar in 2008 to be reauthorized, which is not a gimme. He's a lame duck president. The wars have failed. We know all about extraordinary rendition and and torture. I mean, it's a different world than 2003. Is Congress going to spend another $15 billion on a sexually transmitted infection that affects black and brown people in other countries? Well, it turns out they are. And and no small part of that, I think, is is um, uh, due to the, the all of the folks that were working on Capitol Hill, including Mark Dibel, who also is really instrumental in changing um, the ways that PEPFAR um, reports data to Congress. And yes. one of the things that PEPFAR does that's it, it really critical is that it tells a story of what it's doing in more detail than almost any other aid program. But it is possible to do. And again, looking to COVID, like this, we can do this again. Um, Ambassador Goosby comes in and um, really um, undertakes to expand and enrich the um the language and the the um the the approach um with PEPFAR with regard that PEPFAR takes with regard to key populations, so-called key populations. So LGBT folks, girls, women, um, groups that are not in the same um that don't make tug the heartstrings of the conservatives necessarily right. in the same way. He's he's working in the Obama administration. He establishes a scientific advisory board, which is really critical to sort of having a way to um, evaluate um, new data, which they, which is pivotal at the moment that he's in charge, and then act on it quickly, sometimes ahead of WHO. And then you have Ambassador Burks, who succeeded Ambassador Goosby, and at the moment that um, the this 90-90-90 tree of goals that we were talking about um, is is coming to light, and she's helpful and PEPFAR and the U.S. government are helpful in sort of having that become a rallying cry. And then she really takes it and says, look, this isn't humanitarian. I mean, it is, but we're going to use our money to end epidemics, to achieve epidemic yeah. control. Now, I want to come back to uh, Deborah Burks in a minute. Um, uh, one final comment about Eric Goosby. Um, he started the process of trying to look at how to do things more effectively and efficiently and um, yep. and, and trying to make uh, uh, better decisions with the money. Um, a personal story for you, uh, Emily, as you know, um, when he became uh, the so-called global aid czar, um, he was, in fact, the chief executive officer of Pangea, and yeah. he pretty much yeah. took all of his staff to uh, to Washington. So when I inherited his role at Pangea with much excitement, um, I found I had a desk, some papers, and not very much else, and it was it was all rebuilding. But Did he it take really HIV off the keyboards. You just take the keys with him. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I did get left some very nice office furniture that someone had donated, um, but uh, my legs are significantly shorter than his, so I never really got the hang of them. <laughs> but yeah, on to so on to Debbie work. Debbie Burks. Um, so in, in the early years, particularly around girls and women, um, she, to my mind, was exceptional. Um, uh, Pangea created the Pangea Zimbabwe AIDS Trust, which is going today, thrives, and has been a vehicle for the Zimbabwean government and the US government to develop services, um, uh, both health and uh, vocational services for young HIV positive, HIV positive girls, and she stole the show at an event at the Zimbabwe International AIDS Conference on AIDS in Africa in 2015. They they just crowded around her. She loved it, um, and her handlers could not get her away from that session. I think for a good two hours, and and my. 
The sadness about this is that I'm sure that all of that, all of that will be forgotten um, for what happened afterwards. Um, you know, to some degree, she was the person who kept PEPFAR functional during the early years of Trump, but it'll be what happened um, in COVID. Um, and, and perhaps a sense of hubris that she could contain the administration. But I wonder, do you think there was that there was some meaningful contribution she actually made, rather than perhaps a, a few memes of looking exceptionally uncomfortable when the, the former guy talks about the use of bleach? Right. Um, you know, I think that... Um I think that Lawrence Wright, who has written a remarkable book about about this this the plague year, um, uh, you know, captures some of what what I was privy to as it was unfolding, which is that, um, you know, at at a point where where Ambassador Burks realized that the political situation in inside the White House was untenable, um, she got in a car and she started driving around the country, um, going to governors, going to universities, going to uh, native reservations and meeting with um, public health officials and and imploring them to institute mask mandates and imploring them to put out good public health messaging about um, about social distancing and she was the only federal government official to do so. Um, the thing about prevention is that you can't measure a negative, right? It's 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 quite difficult to measure a negative. You can't prove a negative. Um, while she's still in the White House, do we gain any days, um, uh, you know, between when Trump says he wants to reopen, wait, wait, I think this is around Easter, forgive me, I blacked out that year, but essentially, you know, you know, threatening to reopen so we can have Easter services and maintaining, maintaining closure for a little bit longer. I mean, I think that, I think the truth will, is coming out and will out. And I think that, um, that you, what, what is, Sort of critical to understand about Ambassador Burks versus Tony Fauci, Dr. Fauci, um, is that she served at the pleasure of the president and could have been fired at any time, and mm. and Fauci had job security, and so you see two people with a long history of collaborating, um, operating in ways that reflect their personality and that also reflect their um, their their position, and 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 you see somebody who, at a moment when there is, you know, I I won't speak for her, but an evaluation that, that there's more to be done outside of the White House than there is inside, goes ahead and does it. Hmm. Yeah, well, I, I, I really look forward to a considered story being made. Um, it, it, it feels to me that, you know, she undoubtedly, one of us, has done extraordinary service to the AIDS movement and the last few years, on so many levels, I guess, have just been utterly unintelligible. Mm -hmm. But can we go back to what may be the greatest failure of PEPFAR? Um, and, and that is uh, the argument that it was weakest when it came to prevention. Um, I mean, it's true for UNAIDS, it's true for the Global Fund. We're two decades into this major ramp-up of investment into HIV since the early 2000s, we haven't really made a significant dent in the number of new infections um, as we should have done. And the people who are continuing to be infected are those from marginalized populations, men who have sex with men, sex workers, uh, girls and women, injection drug users, to name a few. And I really wanted to explore this with you because the start of PEPFAR was was plagued by political controversy. The, the idea that a certain uh, proportion of the budget was required to be allocated to abstinence-only programs, in, in, in other words, sort of reminds me of the sex education my sister got at her convent, you know, just cross your legs and say no, dear. And, and, uh, and, and, and how was that possible? And, and how did these brilliant scientists manage to get their way around it? Sorry, how was what possible? The, the, how was the... it possible that this, a science-driven oh. um, program could have such utterly arbitrary and unscientific strategies baked into them? Right. 
So, I mean, um, at the time that PEPFAR launches, um, the, the, the evidence for what you can do programmatically to bring down rates of HIV um, in the countries where it's operating in East and Southern Africa is thin, thin on the ground. Um, which is not to say that there's no, that I want to be really clear, there's every evidence in the world that condoms work. Male condoms work and female condoms work. Um, and they should be everywhere. Um, but in terms of sort of programmatic level pieces that have, that have helped drive down incidents, there's very little that, that, um, that has shown sort of national programmatic impact. One of the things that then gets picked up, um, be, in part because the president of, of the country, President Museveni from Uganda, is in, incredibly savvy and, and politically savvy and connected and has been since the Reagan administration, um, is this idea that, that um, a suite of interventions in Uganda helped to drive down incidents, um, it helped to drive down um, levels of HIV. Um, and, and that suite of interventions has, has an ab abstinence component. It has a be faithful component. Um, it has used condoms component, um, ABC, um, as it's called. It's never called that in Uganda. It's dubbed that. essentially, who um, take it and package it and it becomes the, the rallying cry and the, um, the uh, standard for the conservatives who are willing to ante up money to treat people in Africa, providing that, that none of the other money goes for things that they consider to be morally abhorrent. Or morally questionable, and and those things range, um, to me, mo most egregiously and 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 uh, and and deleteriously to the program, is the is the in terms of its prevention goals is the is the decision which holds to this day that PEPFAR will not pay for contraception, um, and it when you have a program that is trying to do HIV prevention, primary prevention that that cannot offer contraception to adolescent girls and young women who are not at that moment, at that point in their lives, conceptualizing themselves as at being in dire risk of HIV, but do mm. want to be able to control their fertility. Um, or with an offer of something they want, you will never be able to, at scale, meet their other needs and help them articulate those needs around HIV prevention. So that's a huge, huge gap and failure that persists to this day. And that is baked into the program by conservatives who do not want women to have autonomy. They are they bodily autonomy. Contraception, a comprehensive sexual and reproductive health program includes abortion, right? So, so talking about family planning is widely understood by conservatives to be code for abortion. And so PEPFAR to get the money for treatment, there is a deal struck that we're going to leave all of that other stuff out, right? That's, that's a key part of it. Other components that come in then are these large grants going to groups, many of whom, um, though not all, have, have faith-based affili affiliations and affinities, and they're not trusted by or led by men who have sex with men, transgender people, people who use drugs. So you have a lot of money flowing to large groups that can scale treatment up very quickly. The work that needs to be done for prevention, which is quite different from treatment. So you have, you have ideology, you have structure, and you have bargains. Is it true that um, it's still impossible to do harm reduction through, uh, through PEPFAR, needle exchange, and the uh, provision of um, methadone drug substitution therapy? So it's not, it's not impossible. I mean, with, with, with all of the PEPFAR program, the, the, the program historically has interpreted the U.S. needle exchange to, as, as applying to PEPFAR though they, and applying to overseas funds, though they, they need not. Um, and in, in, in different iterations, not only through PEPFAR, USAID has been very creative, right? If you can't buy a certain commodity, you can pay for everything else that would support delivery of that commodity, whether it's syringes or methadone or buprenorphine. You can build the clinic, or we don't build clinics, we don't do structures, but you can invest in the clinic and train the staff and turn the lights on and do the marketing. And if what is missing is the purchase of the commodity, someone else will happily buy that commodity. Um, the, the 
degree of ingenuity and innovation in the PEPFAR space around that is very limited. Emily, one of the questions I wanted to get your thoughts on were the security ramifications of PEPFAR. Has it been a successful tool of soft power for the US in the last two decades? I mean, in the times that you and I have been still able to travel, you know, you'd see the lovely new tarmac roads going from the airport to the presidential palaces, all of them paid for by China. And you know, the enthusiasm for the no ties attached infrastructure agreements that explicitly made no mention of human rights or social development. Do you think PEPFAR has been a bulwark against these kind of human rights free development aid models? So, you know, the, the people that, that know and understand um, PEPFAR and, and, and the broader um, HIV AIDS investments um, uh, are, are also the ones that won them and, and that fought for them. And, and people living with HIV and their allies um, in, in many countries where, where China is, is paving roads and, and building dams and doing all sorts of other stuff um, are, are under no illusions about, about where the investments in their health and human rights have come from. Um, all too often and unfortunately, the, the government of the countries that they live in, um, uh, and I, I too live in a, in, a, in a country that has had government very recently that, that um, did not uphold the health and human rights of its citizens, um, the governments in the countries that they live in um, are happier to be making arrangements with countries um, that don't require them to respect the human rights of their citizens. Um, uh, than, than to be engaged in negotiations about whether or not um, uh, you must, as you must, um, protect the rights of all humans and their right to health, regardless of who you love and how you present and what you do for a living. Mm. Now, now, one further question, and I know <clears throat> I'll get absolutely hammered by uh, Yvette Raphael and... Uh, Zeta Rosenberg, if I don't ask this, we have a range of new prevention technologies, uh, the depivirine ring, long-acting injectables. Do you think these are going to be making the same kind of game changers that treatment itself did 25 years ago? So I think that they could. I think there's real potential. But like uh, 25 years ago with treatment, we have to get some things right. And one of the things we have to get right is cost. It is not clear yet what the injectable is going to cost. There's been much more transparency around the ring. But we have to make sure that there's equity and access to medical innovation across the board with all of these new biomedical prevention tools. So I'm watching that very closely. We also have to get the notion of choice embedded in all of this. People start treatment when they are ready with full information. People need to start the prevention tools that are going to protect them at a moment that they are ready and with full information. And we need to understand that people at risk of people living with HIV are whole people. And this, this goes back to this, and they have multiple needs. And this goes back to the other point that I was making earlier, that sexual and reproductive health, an HIV prevention tool is part of your sexual health, right? So if you must be going into programs that want to talk to you about the other things you might be worried about. Maybe it's lubricant. Maybe it's how to have safe, pleasurable sex. Maybe it's pregnancies. Maybe, you know, there's many, many things that are part of our sexual health. And it's going to be essential that these really powerful tools get rolled out in these programs that uphold choice and information and sexual and reproductive health and rights, and that they're affordable. And if we can do those things, and we know we can, because we did them with antiretrovirals, it will change the game. The product on its own sadly will not. And we've got to make sure we have the same level of enthusiasm and sheer gritted determination. And, you know, looking at it, I see that from people like you and our brothers and sisters in the countries most affected. And that, that sort of gives you a sense of optimism. Um, as we look at the last year, do you think COVID has changed the way people think about HIV? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, it's changed it in so many different ways, and it really depends where you sit. So, so you have, on the one hand, a sense of AIDS amnesia, where people saying things like, 
the the most serious global pandemic you know you know in history you know which is, as though as though HIV the ongoing global pandemic you know is somehow over a footnote or not um, you know having you know 1.2 million people acquire HIV every year right so you have that sort of level I think in the communities where um, people are hardest hit. Um, uh, you know, we are seeing how COVID and HIV trace the same fault lines of inequity and and structural violence and systemic racism. Mm -hmm. um, and we're also seeing an Yvette Raphael, who you mentioned, a comrade in South Africa. Um, you know, women living with HIV across East and Southern Africa are are um, are seeing in the lockdowns, in the loss of informal economic um, opportunities, in the return of, of men who've been working in migrant situations, coming back to villages and wanting to get married, um, children being pulled out of school, we're seeing an HIV a, a surge in the sexual violence, in the gender-based violence, in, the, um, in the, the conditions of constrained choice and constrained economic um, opportunity that, that drive HIV. And so I think COVID is changing HIV on the ground as we speak and exacerbating it and whether that's reflected up yet into the the minds of policymakers it certainly is if you look at UNAIDS head Winnie Bianima she's been incredibly articulate about this but but I think we have a, a ways to go to make this connection that that these pandemics are, are not they don't they don't just rhyme the solutions are, are intertwined mm. I mean I, I confess I'm um a little less sanguine. I, I, I just have this sense of, you know, both COVID and HIV disappearing into the background like mm. malaria and TB. Mm. And, you know, we spend the next 30, 40 years, you know, arg arguing for a diseases of poverty strategy because essentially, um, you know, they'll never get the full attention that they had, but they will keep on infecting the world's poorest. Um, I mean, you know, I think that that uh, if I have if I have a source of hope, um, you know, it, it's it's the history that that I just told in this book. Um, honestly, is is you know, twenty years on, you have an activist movement that has remained committed to ending a specific pandemic that has secured that funding through three presidents and eight congresses, as well as maintaining the global fund as as a really disease focused bottom-up funding mechanism. And I do think that, that you know, it, that doesn't mean it's going to happen again, but it happened, and it is happening. And I think we have to understand that, um, that a broad, uh, you know, health for all disease, you know, non-focused um, investment will not make anybody safer. And the communicant, including those of us that, that, that may feel we live in privilege, and so it's making those linkages, right? Um, I'm not sanguine, but but I but there is a precedent, and and that precedent um, yeah. can be repeated. And and if there's something very optimistic about that precedent, which seems so timely for now, is that we were able to build extraordinary coalitions of strange bedfellows, church leaders, business leaders, as well as activists, uh, north and south, and and that that has to inspire us. Well, I see we're getting to the top of the hour, and I ask this of every guest. And, I, okay, so this last year and a half has been really strange for all of us. How have you, st how have you stayed sane? What books or TV have uh, stuck out to you and sort of helped you along the way? I mean, you know, honestly, uh, uh, this book that I, I just finished helped me, um, and I'll and I'll tell you why. It it um, I I went on sabbatical to finish the book on February twenty eighth, and my kids' school went virtual uh, on on March thirteenth, and um, and so I did I did two things for the for the next ten months. I I um, tried to make their lives. Um, I, I I tried. I, I I worked with my partner to have a. a, a home that that adjusted with all of its privilege of economic security and and housing security um to sort of unthinkable changes for our for for our children um and i buried myself in the history of of the recent uh past and um 
and anybody, whether it was Netflix or or your favorite mystery writer or uh, the Shot in the Arm podcast, whatever was your distraction really helped you. And in my case, it was it was telling the story. Um, so so I will say that. Um, and then and then a grand merci more recently to to the great French actors and call my agent because that. <laughs> that <laughs> you know, from, from the sublime to the, and all, all activism has to have moments of pleasure. Right. So, so, uh, right. there's certainly been some Netflix moments as well. So, so I'll share this with you rather than Sharon Ann Lynch, that, that my go-to these last few months, really surprising was season four of The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, wow. And Aunt Lydia. Oh my God. And McDowd, she, wow. She really steals the show. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. Well, Emily, thank you so much. Thank you. It's you really a pleasure. A sh- <laughs> you cut me off and I couldn't say my bit. Go for but... <laughs> it. Go it. Go for it. <laughs> thank you. Emily Bass, you are a shot in the arm. <laughs> so thanks to Emily and good luck with the new book. It's called To End a Plague, America's Fight to Defeat AIDS in Africa. Thanks to Eric Espera, our director and producer from Newsdoc Media. And thanks also to you for watching and listening. Remember, you can find us on YouTube and on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Shot Arm Podcast and wherever you download your podcasts. This episode is made in memory of Sarah Middleton-Lee, one of Britain's most important global AIDS policymakers and one of the brightest lights of our generation, even if I did routinely piss you off, Sarah, for being late for meetings. Well, have a safe week and a great week, everyone. Yeah.